space. And what we're doing tonight is exactly what we wanted to see. We couldn't be prouder to see them take forward their work, continue to provide a platform uh, for them to make an impact uh, in, in their community and a significant impact, we hope, over policy. The whole purpose of sort of what we've been working on and, and through this partnership, I'd say, is how do you actually infuse the perspectives that our veterans bring back from the field where you've had to be public facing, be soldiers, and in many respects, sometimes diplomats, to help inform US foreign policy making. And it's an organization that, that you've start to, uh, started to run, Veterans for Diplomacy, which star targets student veterans, which I think can play a huge role in a disruptive way that we need in how we formulate uh, foreign policy. And so that's the dialogue that our program's been trying to elevate. How do you harness and power those who have been out in the fight on the front lines of US foreign policy to play a role, a transformative role in adapting what is a huge debate in our country right now? Where are we going? What is America's role in the world? today, and what instruments do we use to exercise an influ our influence? So with that, I'm going to turn it over to, to Jason to, to run the show. Um, uh, many of you already know him, inaugural uh, member of our class of Take Point Fellows, current Presidential Management Fellow, a program I had a chance to be a part of at one point, uh, working at the Office of Management Budget at the White House. Um, but he's found some time somehow to manage this program as well. Uh, very well done. A decorated U.S. Air Force, uh, uh, an Iraq War veteran, Fulbright Scholar, Defense Council member at the Truman National Security uh, project. Um, Jason's exactly the kind of future leader that we want to have in the Atlantic Council uh, family, but frankly, the U.S. foreign policy needs. And so thank you for the work you've done, and thank you for bringing this group together. Let me turn it over to you. I like to joke when uh, there's four South Carolinians that have moved to D.C. and ended up staying, so whenever Damon I is in the room, uh, that's 50% of them. So, um, before we begin, I want to give a shout out to our supporters, um, the Atlantic Council, first and foremost, Damon Wilson, um, President Fred Kemp, uh, Governor John, John Huntsman, uh, Jonathan Silverthorne, uh, who helped me take a vision and turn it into reality. Also, um, for continuing support, the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition um, with Andrew Cross, and uh, Palantir as well. Well, I'm not as elo eloquent as, uh, uh, as Damon. Um, I, I want to say, dear friends, colleagues, and special guests, I want to sincerely thank you for joining us on this special day to celebrate the DC launch of Veterans for Diplomacy and to congratulate the 2015 Veterans for Diplomacy Fellowship class. I can't express what an honor it is to be surrounded by such amazing individuals and receive such incredible support. To be honest, I'm still taken aback to see an idea to empower veterans transform into Veterans for Diplomacy. And this is only the beginning. On a very personal level, today is extremely meaningful for me because V4D did not develop overnight. It is a culmination of a nine-year journey. As with most in this room, my journey began when I answered my nation's call to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. I spent four years in the Air Force and one tour in Iraq. My experience serving our nation completely altered my personal, academic, and career trajectory. As a veteran, I was then eager to gain a deeper understanding of the policies I implemented as a civil engineer in Northern Iraq. So I went to the Hill as a military legislative assistant. In this position, I realized that we cannot substitute 
the incredible personal experiences and perspectives that contribute in policy, that veterans contribute in policymaking. Despite genuine dedication to these issues, political leaders cannot properly serve and understand our military and veterans without the addition of our voices. After my experience with Congress, I continued my engagement in the US government in a diplomatic role as a US Fulbright scholar to Turkey. In this fellowship, I aim to bridge, build relationships with the people of a strategic ally to the US and NATO. Even there, it was grossly apparent the veterans, unfortunately, were not represented. As I stood in a remote village in Turkey on the forefront of America's soft power, it struck me that I was just one of two veterans in this important diplomatic initiative. Veterans represent American core values and embody patriotism. Programs like the Fulbright are perfect opportunities to engage the unparalleled experiences and skills veterans have to offer. My personal experiences in Congress and as a US Fulbright scholar illustrate the inherent value and need of veterans in diplomacy. I can assure you that those who are willing to sacrifice their lives to keep our country safe and defend their values have the best interest at heart for US diplomacy. And this is why I created Veterans for Diplomacy. Veterans are America's greatest resource and Veterans for Diplomacy plans to tap into that. Our mission is to empower these veterans, specifically student veterans and recent graduates, to serve again in diplomatic roles that protect our national interests at home and abroad by helping them to identify and earn prestigious fellowships and scholarships. The program we created includes a one-year fellowship consisting of an innovative three-day training program that is reflective, practical, and ambitious. Hosted in 2015 at New York University's Wagner School of Public Service and now expanding to two cohorts with the addition of George Washington University's Elliott School, Elliott School in 2016, the curriculum is taught by leading foreign policy and national security experts. Veterans for Diplomacy also developed a women's initiative that complements the three-day training course by providing specific support on the specialized issues that female fellows face. Perhaps more important, it fosters a frank dialogue about gender issues in the military, an essential step forward in a landmark year for women finally being able to serve on the front lines. Most importantly, we developed a mentorship piece recruiting fantastic mentors who agreed to provide expert one-on-one -on -one guidance for at least one year to each fellow. Of the 19 mentors serving, we have 12 veterans and seven civilians who have earned a combined 28 prestigious awards including four Harry S. Truman Scholars, three Marshall Scholars, two Rhodes Scholars, one Tillman Scholar, three Fulbright Scholars, one White House Fellow, and four Presidential Management Fellows. Needless to say, these heavyweights of the foreign policy community will be invaluable to our fellows. With those three components combined with leadership and networking events such as the one tonight, Veterans for Diplomacy is distinctly situated to highlight and promote the value of student veterans and to empower as well as develop America's next foreign policy leaders. We're extremely proud of our inaugural class of fellows. The 2015 Veterans for Diplomacy class represents nine universities, come from four different branches of service, and have earned a total of 34 accommodation medals to include Bronze Stars, Joint Service Medals, and Purple Hearts. With that being said, please let me introduce the inaugural 2015 Veterans for Diplomacy class. Fellows, please stand when your name is called, and everyone, please hold your applause until the end. David Anderson, United States Marine Corps, Georgetown University. Roman Baca, United States Marine Corps, St. Mary's College of California.
Pam Campos, United States Air Force, New York University. Suham Barhos, United States Marine Corps, University of Maryland. Carol House, United States Army, Georgetown University. Peter Kiernan, United States Marine Corps, Columbia University. Matthew Mainzer, United States Marine Corps, Pace University. Danita Sessions, United States Air Force, Hostos Community College. Robert Walker, Oxford University. Please join me in congratulating the inaugural 2015 Veterans for Diplomacy Fellowship class. <laughs> Fellows, please be seated. Now it is my distinct honor and privilege to introduce you to a friend, mentor, and moderator for this event, Dr. Mark Jacobson, Senior Advisor to the Secretary of Defense, Damon, thank you and the Atlantic Council for your hospitality as well. Uh, ladies, gentlemen, fellows, uh, it's good to see the class of 2015 again and congratulations uh, on really a, just a tremendous achievement uh, both individually uh, and of course uh, being part of a, a wonderful organization. Uh, but of course you are all at the beginning of your careers and we are going to look forward to what you have to bring in the future as well. As, as Damon said in his introduction much more succinctly than I ever could, this is about a generation that needs to take the point, that needs to prepare for what comes in the future. And I can think of no better way to take, learn how to take the point than learning from experience. I think uh, I'm about to uh, misquote uh, Bismarck, uh, who said uh, something to the effect of, I'm not going to learn from my own mistakes, I'm going to learn from other people's mistakes. Um, that's certainly a wise piece of advice. And uh, certainly, if, if I were on the, on the panel today, you could learn from a wide array of mistakes I've made in my own career that could help you along with, with yours. But what we have collectively here on stage, including myself, and I, I think I may have the math about right, we probably have about 75 to 100 years of military experience uh, here, uh, and, and diplomatic experience as well. I know, see, as, as you get older, it becomes brutal. But, uh, but again, the range of experience, and you have the, the bios and the sheets in front of you, but I'll, I'll introduce the panelists briefly, is really unique. And I also, as a personal uh, pleasure here, I think I have now served with everyone here uh, on the dais uh, in one capacity or another, at least two in Afghanistan, uh, one working around Washington, D.C., uh, and another colleague in the Pentagon today. So um, it's, it's my great honor to introduce our panelists this evening, and uh, in alphabetical order, I'll first uh, introduce Mike Breen, uh, who you've already heard, President and CEO of the Truman National Security Project and the Center for National Policy, but also a former Army officer with uh, time both in Iraq and Afghanistan. But then to kind of give you a sense of uh, what we're going to talk about tonight, he also co-founded the Iraqi Refugee Assistance Project uh, and has also worked uh, with refugees at high risk on the ground in Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. And if you can corner him afterwards, he can kind of talk, talk to you about his Hajj around the world uh, following his time on, on, on active duty, which I've always found fascinating. Um, then to Mike's right, uh, we have uh, retired Brigadier General Kimberly Field, and I had the pleasure of serving uh, with, with Kim in Afghanistan during some very interesting times. Uh, she is currently the Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. Uh, C I'm sorry, I'm going to get the CSO, which 
we've, it's been through a few name changes, so I sometimes uh, get lost there. But uh, so again, a shining example of where someone uh, is able to work both in the diplomatic and development worlds as well as the military world. Uh, but uh, don't let, that's just not the, uh, the end of her experience. You're also dealing with uh, one of the most highly trained and competent strategists in the U.S. military, uh, someone who uh, really drove forward the security force assistance effort, effort uh, at the Pentagon after her work in Afghanistan in 2011. Uh, third, uh, we have uh, Miriam Krieger, a major in the U.S. Air Force, a fighter jock, um, but also uh, a Ph.D. candidate at Georgetown University. So uh, we have our warrior diplomat uh, <laughs> pending as, as well. Um, Miriam has one of the most difficult jobs uh, for someone at her length of service in the military, and that is being in the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff's action group. So this means you are responding, but better yet, anticipating the needs of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff on a daily basis. And those of you who know General Dunford know that he does not suffer fools. So well done, Miriam. <laughs> and finally, um, another one of my colleagues from Afghanistan, Ambassador Bill Taylor, uh, whose storied career spans every garden spot, I think, around the world, uh, including, uh, you know, running up to, I guess, uh, Hudson on the Highlands and uh, um, at, West, at West Point, which I did not realize until reading this that you were a West Point grad as well. Um, but um, Ambassador Taylor's storied career has taken him most recently, uh, well, on leave, on loan from USIP to the State Department, uh, now back at USIP, but he's handled uh, some of the trouble spots in Tunisia, Libya, Syria, and uh, was the U.S. government's representative to the Middle East Quartet at a particularly critical time. So again, the wealth of experience you have today um, is really unprecedented. And what I'd like to do with, uh, with the panelists this evening is uh, we, will, we will start, uh, I will start with uh, Ambassador Taylor and, and work my way backwards uh, here. And uh, what I, they're each going to do for you is give you about five minutes or so of their thoughts on how your military experience may translate into what you're going to do in the future or what you need to be thinking about as you make this transition. So again, profiting from their uh, words of wisdom and experience. Then we'll talk a little bit about some of the issues raised and then get to your questions. So uh, thank you. And with that, uh, Ambassador Taylor. <coughs> so thank you all very much. It's, it's great to be here. Damon, thank you for uh, hosting this. Jason, uh, congratulations for putting this together. I'm, I'm honored to be here uh, among this group and, and with you. Um, you graciously didn't say my military service, which was in, yes, Vietnam. in Vietnam. <laughs> just, to, just to be clear, kind of how long we've been uh, we've been doing this. So I, I, I spent. Uh, so my first unit was the 82nd um, at Fort Bragg, and then I was in the 101st uh, uh, in in the northern part of Vietnam, uh, 1772, um, and learned some things there. And we talked about learning lessons. Um, uh, can learn some good lessons from a lot of our military experience. And so, uh, good and bad. I mean, so we have to be open to this, this range of, of experience that, that we all have. Everybody in this room has spent time in various parts of the military, um, has seen the good and seen some bad. And so this is what we have to recognize. And, and then do this, uh, taking advantage of the experience, living abroad, um, understanding countries and people, uh, environments, conflicts um, uh, that, that you've lived through, that we've lived through, that we've tried to understand and see, uh, try to understand where we did some good things and where we made mistakes, where we shouldn't have been 
Um, and you know, there, are, there are those. We have to take those examples. And those are useful in diplomacy. Those thoughts, those ideas, those learning from the mistakes um, are, are useful in the State Department, um, where I spent some time. Um, took um, advantage of, uh, so I never went back to Vietnam. I've yet to go back to Vietnam. I hope to do that at, at some point. Um, but lessons of, so I was a platoon leader and a company commander in Vietnam. Um, so there is, uh, uh, there's something to be learned about combat command. Um, there's something to be learned about crisis management. Um, there's something to be learned about working with people in various aspects. Um, but as I say, I spent some time in Iraq, um, spent some time in Afghanistan, spent some time in Jerusalem, learning about working on trying to work through conflicts. Um, and everybody in the military has dealt with conflict. That's why we're in the military. Um, the place I'm working now is the United States Institute of Peace. Um, and the Institute of Peace looks for ways to solve conflict. Um, the Pentagon and everybody in this room in the military, there are ways to resolve conflict. Military, forceful ways to resolve um, But there are also, we're looking for ways to, to resolve conflict with nonviolent means. And, that's, and everybody in the military has a stake in that. We're in favor of that. We'd much rather do it that way than, than the alternative. So there are lessons, lessons to be learned. Um, my son didn't learn a lesson, so he went into the military as well. And, uh, uh, he was also in the infantry and uh, uh, was in the 10th Mountain. He spent his year in Iraq. Um, GI Bill put him through law school. Uh, so we, we continue to, to, in the family, to learn, learn these lessons as well. So I'm going to stop there and let others uh, tell their lessons. Great. That's Thank it. you, Ambassador. And my apologies. I forgot about that. that <laughs> no, key, no, no. It's, the it's, key part uh, <laughs> of his military experience there. Thank you. Miriam? So uh, as happens very often to me working for the chairman, I feel like the uh, least experienced person on this illustrious panel. Um, but that makes you, actually makes me a little closer, I think, to maybe how you all feel with the weight of the world, but also the opportunities all in front of you. So um, I want to share a little bit of my perspective, both from my research and from my life. And hopefully it's a little bit practical, um, and I'm happy to, to explore it more later. But um, I did a lot of research on military diplomacy for my dissertation. And one thing that we forget, one thing that's not well known, is the depth and breadth of military diplomacy that we engage in in our normal foreign policy operations. And it's not just at the combatant commander level, the four stars who, for better or worse, act as regional ambassadors sometimes to their area of responsibility. It actually permeates all the way down to the junior officers, to the senior enlisted, uh, to the junior enlisted who are doing one-on-one -on -one engagements, mill-mill uh, engagements with our partners and our coalition allies, with locals on the ground in villages and communities, with the State Department, with the interagency, um, with NGOs. And so we learn to operate in this, um, this hybrid sphere now where uh, you know, the Army talks a little bit about the, the three-block war, where you can be in combat operations on one block, in stabilization operations on another block, and in reconstruction operations on another that it's all meshed together. And so learning to operate in that, that sphere is so important. So the first thing I would say to you is leverage that experience. You actually have that experience. And everyone has taken something different from the last 15 years of conflict. Um, my husband was a Strike Eagle pilot, a Strike Eagle whistle, and he, it, a year in Afghanistan, never stepped foot off the base. Whereas um, I'm sure many of you spent a lot of time actually engaging with the folks uh, that are one-on-one -on -one in front of you in the, in the villages and in the, the um, communities. 
Um, so take that experience and, and share it. Um, and more than that, share it with your fellow classmates, with your cohort in this organization and in other fellowship organizations you're a part of, um, because they don't necessarily know your experience either. Um, and, and you can bring a lot to the conversation there. So leverage that experience and, and learning to speak um, from a position where you feel like perhaps you're not the most experienced in the room and having the confidence that actually you've engaged in this on a practitioner level, on the cutting edge, seeing the impact of good policy and bad policy as it influences the individuals and the communities right in front of you, that's an incredible value. So the second piece I'll say, so from my own experience is, um, this city in particular, but your opportunity here is incredible. The, the, the wealth of um, positions and networks that you can dial into, especially now with this community that you've joined, um, can, can shape your future uh, in ways that are really valuable. Um, there are internships and fellowships. There are academic programs and organizations like this. There are networks and, and social media um, arenas that you can engage in and share your ideas and share your discussion points and more than that learn from others um, and bring their ideas in. It's important to be innovative and entrepreneurial and disruptive. It's also important to get the wisdom and the experience that others can bring to you um, because there's balance there, right? It's attention. Um, knowing a lot of times we conflate change with progress but at the same time, we also assume that because it's the status quo, it must be right. So neither of those things are true, right? The truth is in the middle. And the last thing I would say, the insight that you can bring in particular to the foreign policy community is that there's a nexus between security and governance that is, um, has been explored in past, but in fact is, is something that has probably drawn you all to this experience right now, right? You saw through your military experience, through your, your cooperation, with your partners and, and the joint force and whatnot, how the relationships that you build can ultimately build something better, a democratic society, um, peace, stability, uh, and, and potentially growth, economic you know, growth. Um, and so that nexus is something that's hard for a lot of folks to understand because they haven't seen it. And they don't understand how the security is required to build the next step, or sometimes how the next step is what gives you the security, and that that, that tension is, is a, is something that you engaged in and you know. And so bring that to the table and share that with your, your compatriots. That is a hard act to follow, especially the, the <laughs> Zen Buddhist advice oh. that you just gave. I don't know how to do that's really <laughs> Not fired yet. <laughs> so how, how many of you are, are veterans? How many of you have served? Like everybody, lots of people. Uh, wow, okay. Um, so in, in a sense, I want to be a little humble about this. I mean, what, who am I to tell you what your experience means, right? Every, everybody's experience has been different. Um, I mean, for me, I'd say a, a couple of things. Just the first one really is you, know, you wouldn't be here if you weren't sort of leaning in and ambitious about this stuff, and you're clearly looking for the tools you need to be successful, or you wouldn't be here. That's really good stuff. Um, but there can be a, a huge amount of pressure that sort of follows us all coming out of the military that says, we, I have to have a linear path. I have to have a 10-year plan, right? Um, you, a, you don't. And B, most people don't have 10-year plans. And C, 10-year plans don't survive contact with year one anyway. So it's all right, right? It is OK. You have plenty of time to build a career. Um, and every experience is valuable, even the missteps. I've learned more from the mistakes and, and the dead ends I've taken professionally than the stuff that's worked out in a lot of cases. So it's all right. Um, I'd say a couple things you know, for me about military experience that have been really helpful. As you sort of make that transition, I mean, part of, I think, what what you're doing in some ways is trying to make a transition from a, an implementer to a policymaker. And the instincts that you've developed 
as military people, I think are invaluable to keep alive and, and to try to, I'd caution you against training yourself through academic learning and, and entering bureaucracies out of those instincts. What do I mean by that? Um, I think we can all remember the experience of being in Iraq or Afghanistan or anywhere else and having something that looks like policy come down, right? The memo, the good idea, fairy signs, and it arrives, and you're, and it tell, and you're like, I'm supposed to do what? With what resources? How? Right? And you want me to achieve what effects on the ground? I, I would say try to remember for the rest of your life what that experience is like because every policy that you think about, write, author, or, or send down the chain, Somebody somewhere, whether they're an FSO or a military officer or, or NCO, whoever it's going to be, is going to be in that position of trying to make the rubber meet the road. And we all know sometimes that the ways and the means don't line up so that you can achieve the ends. And by definition, that means the strategy is fractured. So just try not to lose your, your spidey sense about that. I think another place uh, to try to keep some spidey sense is I mean, we talk about the 4D approach, diplomacy and development and democracy and defense and all the tools of national power and all these sort of grandiose ways. But you know, often we find ourselves crafting a foreign policy approach that in part involves the application of violence to a problem. That's what the military tool is at the end of the day. Violence or the threat of violence applied to a problem. Sometimes it's the right thing to do. But we, I think military people have an intuitive understanding of what that means that is hard to bake into somebody through any level of academic training or reading. If I have a human problem and I apply violence to this, what's that going to do? You have a sixth sense about that, that I think experience is the only teacher that can give you that sixth sense. And I would, I would really urge you not to lose that in theory. Because it's easy to quiet that voice, but if it doesn't smell right, it probably isn't right. Um, and we've all seen the strange follow-on effects that can happen through this. Um, you know, I remember in Afghanistan, you know, the most dangerous guy in my sector for a little while in Kunar province was you know, a lone sniper who turned out was just mad at us because we killed his brother down near Kandahar. Okay. He, was a real, he was worse than any of the organized forces we were fighting in terms of the casualties he was imposing. That's a consequence of the application of violence that's predictable, but it's hard to predict from a textbook. But you all have a feel for that now. Um, and then the last thing, I just kind of echo you and say, uh, on a lighter note, like, you have a really good sense of how to survive in a bureaucracy and how to balance learning and leading with being a team player. And that's a lot of what the game is about, is knowing when to step forward, knowing how to raise your concerns, um, knowing how to be constructive to the organization, knowing how to, f how to do right by a leader that you think might not be headed in the right direction, and, and be, a good, be a good follower, be a good subordinate, be a good team member, and at the same time lead in that way, to lead up, to manage up within the organization, but then to be very decisive within your own mandate when, when the time is right. Uh, and those skills are really important. Um, that also sort of demands that we keep doing, I think, tasks that we've sort of been forced to learn in the military. The biggest one is, I mean, raise your hand if you did only what you were trained to do when you were in the military. You got great training and you just did that thing, right? That has never happened in the history of the military, right? It's also never happened in the history of any other foreign policy job or, or any other job that I'm aware of. So that survival instinct of reaching for resources and, and just being a student all the time that never goes away, and I think you know if you can keep a hold of that, it's a it's a really valuable thing to to keep doing. And with that, uh, I will stop talking. Great, thank you, Mike. Kim, thank you. There's nothing left to say. <laughs> no, there is. Thank you.
Damon, thanks a lot for hosting this. And Jason, where are you? Where'd he go? No. Anyway, um, and Mark, it's just great to be here. Um, it's great to be with you, sir, with you guys. Congratulations um, to all of you. You have a wonderful experience. It's highly competitive. You, know, you are really launching into this new path in a, just a terrific way. Um, I spent 31 years, including West Point, and no, we are not the same class. Okay. <laughs> um, 31 years in the military, 27 years post West Point. Um, so really what I know is the military. I have now been at the State Department for about seven months. Right. So I can see um, some, some, um, certainly some differences in culture, process, people, all of it. But I, I don't want to say that I, can, I see it clearly. I've only been there seven months, as I said. But I'm going to take a slightly different angle here, and I'm, going to, and I'm going to, one, tell you the reason why I got out of the military, and suggest that these greatest strengths that you have can become weaknesses um, as you enter a world that is more complex, uh, is much less resourced, um, and is much less clear. So I left as a one-star, um, having been selected for two-star. And people will say, oh, why don't you want to be a two-star? Like, well, what does that mean? What can I do? How can I contribute? Doesn't mean division command for me. That's, I'm a strategist, right? And I'll tell you why. And and, and please, is, is this Chatham House? No. Uh, we're on the record. We're on no. the record. <laughs> All that stuff I just said. <laughs> <laughs> Would be nice to know this up front. No. <laughs> it's okay. I'll say it anyway. Um, that I actually came to see that in a lot, uh, I was deputy strategist for the Army, and then I was deputy director of Middle East on the Joint Staff. And, and, I, and what I came to see, perhaps, was that um, there was a certain almost intellectual dishonesty about the way the military can pursue ends. Right? And I think that that is because when I say greatest strengths can become greatest weaknesses, that which makes you really strong in a tactical fight, which is really where you guys have been at the tactical fight, right? You have to kind of let go of as you want. You cannot get all the facts to make a decision. Now remember, I, when I got to, to the State Department, I have a wonderful Assistant Secretary, Ambassador Dave Robinson. He's uh, newly confirmed. And, and, you know, and he right away told me, hey, Kim, you, know, you, you come from an engineering firm. You're about to enter a law firm. And it, it's actually really good, good advice, right? The, the, the mandate is to sort of litigate, the mandate of the military is to build things and create. So the mission of the military is largely to move men and materiel, men and women, and materiel, and create tactical effects on the ground. Right? It's sort of knowable. There's decision points. You certain, have a certain pile of facts to get there, and you decide, and you can move, and, and you're responsible for it. And you're resourced to do it. Right? It is simply not, it, it's simply not that way in the Department of State. Um, <laughs> so. You know, he'll say, um, you know, I'll use, I, now having said that, believe me, your, your propensity to, for action and the planning it takes to get to action and, you, and that your, your devotion to duty and all those things, we assume it, I assume it all, right? You have it already. Right. Um, but there's reasons why the State Department doesn't do that, why it's not action-oriented, why win doesn't, it's, it's what, that's in our DNA, right? You gotta win, right? It's not necessarily, because it's not really possible in the state, in, in, I'm talking about state. There's other parts of diplomacy as well. But at state, it's not, it's not really possible all the time. So the value is not necessarily the action on the ground, creating a tactical effect. It is in the process. It is in the conversation. It is in, it is in developing the shared vision that will incrementally move many states and many actors toward a common vision. But you have to be patient. 
you have to you have to value analysis and understanding and evidence based evidence based understanding, right? In the military, we're responsible for moving things and, and taking action, and we we will do it, and we will own it, even if a host nation should own it, even if a part. I, I don't know how many in Afghanistan. Right? How many times did we grab two people, two Afghan soldiers? I was the um, as a colonel, I was executive officer to the IJC commander. I was in there for two years straight. How many times would we grab two Afghan soldiers to, to, for a raid in Paktika or in Korangar Valley or wherever it was, two, two on the way out the door to create effects that we knew we had to create to destroy a small cell of venues, wherever it was? But really what we should have done was partnered earlier, taught the Afghans how to do it. Right? We were way slow on doing that. And that's even at the tactical level. Right? So, I'm, so I, I, I'm sort of bringing everybody down, <laughs> probably. But I'm just, I'm just cautioning you that this, 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 um, this win culture and this idea, this, this, um, um, want to reject ambiguity and gray. And I know at the tactical level you've had gray, but I will tell you when you get to, out into the bigger world out here, um, and it's bigger. And I knew having served two tours with the State Department before, when I was in uniform, I knew the world was big. Right? We have ambassadors, and we have. Um, even desk officers, desk officers who are captain and major equivalent, who are responsible for knowing security policy, not military capabilities, but security policy, as well as environmental policy, as well as de de developmental programs, as well as anything that's an administration priority, and combining it all and understanding where inputs from one affect, affect outcomes and, and even the inputs from others. Um, it's just in, in, enormously complex. So um, I, I encourage you to be open-minded, be objective, to seek truth, um, and if you end up being, you want to be an action-oriented person, know where your personal values are versus, your, versus the organizational values of the organization that you're entering, right? And that's where I came to be at the end of my career, that truth-seeking and objectivity and analysis was really important to me. And I'm not saying that I was right, but to me, at the executive level, I couldn't really operate in, in that in environment um, anymore and be part of the executive level, right? So you can figure that out sooner, probably, than I did. Um, but I, I just encourage you to approach this new world you're entering with that open mind um, and the search for, for truth. And if you don't want to, you can you know, do something else, I suppose. And hey, one more thing, um, and then I'll stop. Um, as, a, as a veteran um, also, I would, I would also encourage you just to be humble about that. Um, I, don't know about, I don't know about you all, and I know I'm speaking to a veterans group set up to say how great veterans are you know, and how much we have to offer to the world, and it's true. There's a lot there. But you know what? Thank you for your service. It, it's, it's wonderful. And some, some have given more than others here. And I'm very conscious of that. Some have saved lives, taken lives, lost soldiers' lives, or Marines' lives. Or, so I'm very conscious. I don't mean to, to downplay it at all. But you know, when the cashier at the, you know, when you're checking out a Kroger or wherever it is, and thanks you for your service, it maybe could be a single mom who's been away, you know, you know, who hasn't had anybody to support her. We leave our families, right? And our spouses stay behind. Um, for years with no end in sight, going to show up every day at work. I just encourage you humility about all of the gratitude and benefits and all that we get from being veterans. Um, and I think that sort of carries over into my previous conversation. So anyway, thank you. <laughs> uh, th thank you, panelists. I, and again, um, my apologies. We're on the record tonight, but I do ask that you don't uh, put Mike out on the front page of the New York Times. Uh, um, it's, we have, we have uh, it's, it's good to encourage a free and frank discussion 
um, as, as well. But uh, thank you for your comments. I you know, want to pick up, before I get to the audience, I'd like to pick up on a couple themes. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the organizational theme that um, you all have, well, veterans tend to come from very structured organizations. Um, uh, Kim, as you pointed out, there, there's some differences uh, between these organizations. And, and Ambassador Taylor, I, I, I thought it might be useful from your experience seeing the diplomatic side, the development side, and the military side. What was most eye-opening for you, what has been most eye-opening for you in terms of the differences between the major organizations, USAID, state, and, and the military and all its uh, permutations in terms of organizational culture? <clears throat> yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, what surprised me was the degree to which before Iraq and Afghanistan, the development folks, USAID, and the diplomats in the State Department were, were separate from and didn't understand the military, didn't understand the defense part. So we got the three Ds. We got the defense, diplomacy, and development. And the diplomacy and development try to work together. So the State Department and USAID try to work together. I have argued for some time, my AID colleagues hate this, um, that, that that the development and the foreign policy are, are united, are, are after the same thing. Um, so you don't need these kind of separate, uh, again, aid doesn't like to hear this, but, but before Iraq and Afghanistan, um, the state and aid folks, diplomacy, <laughs> development, were working along, and the, there was the military. But um, in Afghanistan, first, where we had these provincial reconstruction teams, which were mainly military, probably people in this room served on a couple of those, um, but also had a civilian component. And they valued each other. And they, worked, they started working together. Um, and then it, they, we, we tried the same. I got to Iraq. And people said, Yo, you know, we're doing PRTs in Afghanistan. We should try those here. And we did. And probably again, some people in this room, I see some heads nodding, um, were on something like the PRTs um, uh, in Iraq, where again, there were military people, development people, and, and State Department people, diploma, diplomacy, diplomats, um, were working together. And they understood each other. That was the surprising thing, that they could come together, understand, work together, reinforce each other. That's a good thing that's come out of this last decade. Um, so Mark, that's, that's my, my surprise. Mike, you gave, uh, you know, I th think a number of pieces of wisdom uh, that even I'm, I'm going to be taking away some of those. I hadn't thought of, about a few Great. of these things before, but what's, We're doomed. what's the number one thing you wish your mentors had told you about jumping into this uh, foreign affairs and national security landscape? Uh, landscape? Wow. Um, you don't know as much about management as you think you do. So, right, I mean, it's easy to come out of the military thinking, wow, I'm a junior, I'm a captain, I'm a junior officer, I'm an NCO, I know I, I'm a trained leader, right? And you are. Um, but the truth that you discover later on is that the military has done 95% of the work for you, right? The structure is completely established. The roles are completely established. Um, you have, if you've been a junior officer, you have the incredible, <laughs> incredible benefit of having the finest NCO core in the universe, making you look good even when you're an idiot. Um, I mean, you, there's, there's mentorship baked into the system. I mean, they've thought this through, right? Um, the management challenges are different. And, and this also goes to, to something that, that I think you said that was really true, 
it's not an engineering firm out here. It's a law firm. It's something different. You're, you're looking for a much more sort of subtle and delicate kind of performance out of the people you're leading. Um, so w the leadership style you developed in the military may or may not be right, but it's worth thinking really carefully uh, and being a student of management, other schools of management, other schools of institutional and organizational design, uh, because it's just a different world and you don't know as much as you think you do. Yeah, it's interesting. You take a look at a, a world where we're trying to make organizations flat, and uh, you still look at the basic structure of our military, and it's one of the most hierarchical, or it is the most hierarchical organization out there. Uh, and this is going to have a big implications, I think, for the way that we fight, uh, the way that we interact with our development and diplomacy partners as well. Uh, Miriam, I, you know, you spoke about uh, how you walk into a, you know, with your role, you walk into the Pentagon and you may feel like you're the least experienced person. You've flown combat missions. That's more than a lot of folks in the Pentagon have done. Uh, don't forget that. Um, but what, how do you maintain the sort of professional idealism, moving along and uh, reaching out, knowing that you are going to keep moving on with your career when you often have a sort of bureaucratic structure that can be oppressive? That might be an understatement. Um, so I think there's two things that I would say. One, um, evidence of change. Um, there is evidence of change. The, it, it's interesting now to see it from the perspective of inside the, the five-sided building. And what you thought as a, as a junior officer, a senior enlisted out in the field was um, impossible. It was the policy that was handed down that was absolutely impossible. It was the, um, the ridiculous out of touch um, precepts that are that are issued by by senior leaders who don't know what you're dealing with. What you actually see inside the building is that there are incredibly smart, talented, and innovative people that are um, like Sisyphus pushing the rock, um, and the rock is moving, right? It's it is moving, um, and the tiny wins end up being um, I don't want to say you're satisfied with the tiny wins, but rather you're encouraged by them, um, and so. You don't ever want to be in a position where your goal is mediocrity. Um, and I feel like sometimes that's where we get to in a bureaucracy, right? Status quo is good enough. Don't reinvent the wheel, right? Well, you know, the, the wheel's been reinvented a thousand times since it was a stone, you know, tablet thing that rolled, right? If it hadn't been, we wouldn't have, you know, Toyota Tacomas and, and mini cruisers out there on the streets. Um, you couldn't go off-roading, right, on the stone. So. Um, that, that level of, of, of small changes, I think, is what's inspiring. And then the other piece I'd say is that the people themselves, and, and you'll hear that again and again, and you probably have seen it all. Um, when, you, when you get out of the military, certainly everybody has seen the, the, the poor leadership or the, the, the poor followership. But um, in general, the caliber of folks that you deal with um, you know, in this type of an organization and in the military broadly um, can be very inspiring. Thank you. Kim, you, you spoke about uh, some of the differences, some of the challenges you have, not that you have, that we all could have shifting from a military to a State Department organization. Is there anything in your seven months so far that's jumped out at you, a particular way of handling problems or a particular way of approaching some of these complex issues that you never really had thought of when you were serving in the military? Hmm. You didn't say you were going to ask me that question. I'm just kidding. Um, That's right. And before, can we turn down the air at all? I think it's freezing us out. Yeah. <laughs> it's really cold up here. Um, you know, I mentioned that, that I, and again, my ambassador reminds me that when I get impatient, that there's not an outcome from a meeting or, you know. Um, what do you mean a decisional meeting doesn't have to have a decision? 
well, That's you know, I, I'm struggling with that. Uh, but but, but um, just, the, just this idea that I kind of said, that, that it is the process and the developing of a shared understanding. Uh, we just had a, a meeting that was um, led by our undersecretary, Desini, and, and uh, an Africa assistant secretary. And you know, and I, I walked out feeling a little frustrated. So I felt like I was a little bit rambling, and I didn't know, and I didn't feel like the, the activities were prioritized as a comprehensive approach. Right, so comprehensive means you got everything in there, but when everything's important, maybe nothing becomes important. And you know, and, and I went back, and I have a great mentor and my new, and my boss, and and he said they'll prioritize. That was just a step in getting there, right? That was just a step in every. And now we all know how we feel about oil prices, and you can, you know, if do are oil prices destabilizing? Um, are they going to cause more violence? You have to go back and check that because somebody said it, right? But it might not be true. Right? So there's this search, there is this search kind of for truth. It, 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 there, is, there is more in the process than I thought. Um, there's more value in it than I, than I thought. Yeah. Well, let me, I have a few more questions for the group, but uh, I'd like to get to yours uh, as well uh, while we have time remaining. So if you just raise your hand, uh, if you have a question, please introduce yourself. Um, and uh, and uh, I don't know, if, do we have a microphone? Or it's actually, we're fairly small here, so it might be okay. Okay, either way, please. <laughs> uh, David Anderson. Um, so, Ambassador, you mentioned the PRTs. Uh, I, I worked briefly with the NATO training teams and, and some members of state while there, and you talked about the on-the-ground effects and how you know beneficial they could be. But then you get in a room with people, if you say interagency, you get the you know universal groan just kind of comes up. <laughs> so, I'm looking at transitioning from military to diplomacy. How and this and a lot of you can speak to this. How do you serve as a good faith intermediary between those two worlds? Because you're having to translate military doctrine experience to people in diplomacy and back and forth. And what's the best way to go about that? So the interagency has this horrible reputation for good reason, um, but it's mainly in Washington. You know, this is what I'm saying, that in the field, whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, others, other places, People, I was in an embassy. I led an embassy in Ukraine for three years. Um, and we had people, we, we had a mini interagency there at the, at the embassy in Kyiv. Um, and we had military, we had, um, uh, we had law enforcement, we had FBI, we had commerce, um, we had, of course, USAID and the State Department. Um, and they worked together well. They, you, they work in the field, it's the same thing with PRTs. I mean, they work together well, um, uh, much better, much better than they do in Washington. And I, I'm not sure why, Kim, you will probably have a better sense of, of this, but I also spent some time um, in interagency battles and these kind of things. Uh, but in the field where the mission is clearer, you're closer to the effects that you're after, um, and, you and, it's, and you don't have the resources. Kim's exactly right, you're under-resourced, so you have to work with people that, that have other resources, whether it's military or whether it's law enforcement. It's, it's, they are there to be used. And if you use them well, you can get more done than if you try to do it yourself. But others will have, have thoughts. I was just going to comment. I spent a little time in uh, state as well. And the, you have to understand the currencies are different. So in, in the military side, ambiguity is a liability, right? Um, when you get to both, both to some degree diplomacy and, and to even a greater degree politics, as I watch the Fox News debates through the glass doors over there, ambiguity is the currency of life, right? Ambiguity is important. And so um, 
just recognizing the disparity in that view and being able to kind of stomach it and, and understand it, I think will get you a long way towards towards making sense of the two different perspectives. Okay, sure. Can I add on just one thing about that? Um, some of you are, are not necessarily going to want to be the bridge builders. You're not going to necessarily want to be the oil and the interagency machine. Some of you may really want to do that. Some of you may just want to be traditional, you know, real diplomats in, in, in your in your in your niche. But if you do want to be the um, sort of the oil and the translators and the, which I think is absolutely invaluable, um, I encourage you to to maintain your contacts in the military, to keep an eye on the processes, to uh, to try to understand even from outside, the the way the the building runs, um, how it interacts in the um, in in the decision national security decision making process, sort of again above the tactical level. And I found that very helpful to me already. Um, I could un I could translate to again the Africa Bureau um, why it was that Africom planners were not being coy; they really were looking for civilian policy guidance. You know, it, but but you don't you know because you know it was about Burundi and there's real sensitivities about Burundi and you know it's um, so they really were reluctant to plan and put themselves out there. But you wouldn't necessarily know that coming from you know from captain and below. So but you can know it by just maintaining your contacts and your conversations with with the folks who are, who are staying in. Another example, state capabilities down there talking with our, our undersecretary with General Votel. And um, he said, let us know uh, what capabilities you need so we can get it in our global force management process. Right? That's the kind of glue you can make um, as, as you um, go up uh, both in, in, in levels of responsibility and, and trying to put that oil in the interagency machine. Yeah. So I just I, I, recommend I, that. No, I, I think that's a good point. I, you know, uh, for my own point, the, the one, and, and please respond back if I'm wrong about this, the biggest difference I've always seen between state and DOD is the Department of Defense in so many ways is a masterful planning organization, both to its advantage and detriment at times. Um, but that deliberate planning process you don't see across the board at State Department or USAID. You see it in particular organizations. Um, but as you said, there's also there's a different there's a different currency, there are different priorities, uh, there are different politics, uh, both real and perceived, and and it often uh, uh, it can impact state in different ways than it does the Department of Defense. So, ma'am. Um, hi, I'm Carol House from Georgetown, uh, one of the fellows. Um, my concern is about mobilizing young veterans in the diplomatic field. Clearly, that's an exception for my fellow uh, fellows that are here. Um, but generally, what I noticed when I was transitioning out was that every, all of my young soldiers um, and then all of my fellow junior officers that were transitioning out had a complete lack of interest or fear of working for the government, which I thought was sad because that's exactly what I wanted to do forever. Um, and I, again, clearly an exception for all the fellows that are here um, that want to work in diplomacy. But I'm, um, I was wondering if you guys felt like there was some level of professional military education or development or kinds of um, other developmental assignments that could be integrated into the military at junior levels that would potentially build some of that interest, even if it's just initial introductions to strategy or, like, for me, I, I would have loved to um, been introduced to the operational level of war, but that's just me. I, I like that stuff. Um, but it, what do you think could help mobilize that kind of interest from the younger veterans that are getting out um, into the diplomatic field? Miriam, do you want to sure. start uh, and then to move to Yeah, so similar boat, and I would say, um, a couple of things. One, education. 
Um, and the more that we're adding educational opportunities, you know, almost on a daily basis um, now for, for soldiers and sailors, airmen, Marines. Um, and so that's, that's really what attracted me. So that get, getting that graduate level education, getting that, um, you know, undergraduate level edu education that makes you curious about uh, diplomacy and about how the government works and civics. Uh, the second thing I would say is there are a number of fellowships that the military offers and are, is constantly expanding as well. And um, I'll use the, the name that we use in vain, the force of the future, um, which is expanding you know, opportunities both to fellowship and interagency exchanges and um, education opportunities that will broaden those horizons. And I think the other piece, the last piece, is that we're understanding the concept of how we operate in a much more um, broad and deep way now. So um, in particular, like a joint, jointness, joint officer development, we're looking at it not just with the services, we're looking at it across the interagency into local government, into state governments. And that this idea that now um, jointness is more than just have you served with your fellow services, it's coalition and it's allies and it's partners. Um, and, and that it's not just at the strategic level, it's not just as DDME or, or on the joint staff, it's all the way down into that PRT team lead or that, um, that unit level commander. And so we're working, I think, and they talk about things that inspire me. We're working towards engaging in those processes and those experiences at a, at a much younger level um, that hopefully will encourage folks to continue serving. Thank you. Anyone else want to chime in? or? Okay. <laughs> Ma'am. When you talked about orders coming down that um, people on the ground may not agree with or don't understand how, to, how can we possibly implement this, um, being that you know, all of you have um, military experience, when you're at those meetings, when you're at those uh, decision-making conversations, um, how, how, does it, how does it work with your input, being with your experience, with, with saying, hey, you know, that might not work here? So you said not to lose touch with that feeling that we felt when you said we can't possibly do this with whatever resources that we have. How does that translate for someone who has that experience in a position to say these things? Are, are you heard? Is your experience valued? Or is this a matter of, well, you know, this is the way we do things? Um, I, I think it's, it's all in the how you do it. Um, and you know, I think this kind of comes back to it, to having a degree of humility about the experience that you have, right? I mean, that radar is a very valuable thing. Um, but, you know, I think personally coming into this world and, and any world you're going into coming out of the military, you don't just want to be sort of my identity is that I'm the guy who served in the military. And I'm going to walk into the room and be like, I know what's going on here because let me tell you, I was in Iraq this one time, right? It's not going to work. <laughs> um, and it shouldn't work because, you know, there's limits to everybody's experience and, and a degree of humility is required. But there will be times, um, you know, I, this, this is an on-the-record thing, so I, I hesitate to get too specific about it. But I remember a specific instance. I was a very junior person at the White House Counsel's Office in 2009. I was in a uh, little bit of an interagency uh, planning cell, it was getting ready to, and refining policies and legal authorities to respond to a particular type of crisis. Um, I heard what the plan was going to be. I'm sitting in the back, and I grabbed my boss afterward, and I said, hey, boss, that, that makes tons of sense on paper. It's never going to work that way because here are the things that are going to happen that's going to cause it to completely fall apart. And I didn't say it in the meeting, <laughs> right? You know, and, and I, I had a good relationship with my boss, and uh, my boss was in a position to revise that, and that was it. You know, just, okay, so the, here's, here's a reality check on why this, this particular agency of government is never going to be able to execute that mission. Um, 
so it, it's it's that level of sort of just try to try to do right by your boss, whoever they are, and kind of give them the insight and, and be a little humble about you know how you do it. Um, and sometimes you get lucky and you have a boss who listens to you, and there's actually something they can do, and sometimes you don't, <laughs> and nothing happens, and that's that's just how it goes. Sir. Juan Baca, one of the fellows. I'm also the Marine that started the dance company. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you stand out. <laughs> um, so, a uh, long question. I don't think I can articulate it well. But um, my question is about soft diplomacy. A lot of you touched on it a little bit and the connection between, uh, or the balance between soft diplomacy and military might. Um, the Fulbright specifically, and, and down the line, more and more of our diplomatic efforts have brought in the arts, um, first to introduce the American power of the arts overseas. And recently, especially with ba uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music's initiative to take dance overseas in order to engage with communities, um, when I was... In the Marine Corps, I, we talked about hearts and minds, winning hearts and minds a lot. And when we went out, it was a great slogan to run out under, but in practice, it didn't work so well. Um, in 2012, I had an opportunity to go back to Iraq as a civilian artist and bring two cultures together, Kurdish and Arabic together, to work through a dance workshop, art, soft diplomacy, where I saw it work. I saw hearts and minds being changed and two disparate cultures come together for one goal. What do you see um, in the future and how, I guess, what is the argument for soft diplomacy like dance, music, and other forms of art in the global landscape? Who'd like to take the first crack at that? I'll take a crack at it. Um, it's not a direct hit with your, with your, with your question. Um, but I do think that we're moving collectively, all of us involved in international affairs, to, to, to understanding what works and what doesn't work. Um, we just uh, there's even an organization called EGAP. I forget what it stands for. I know what it stands for. Sorry. It's, it's an evidence-based uh, government in government in action. What again? What works? What doesn't? Which programs? Which diplomatic activities do we know? Um, so in, in our, in our uh, bureau, for example, we have a big effort for monitoring and evaluation. Every time we put in an activity or we recommend an activity is put in place, um, we try to have how will we know if it's working or not. So we have a lot of, of anecdotes, and I'm not saying that your story is, is, is simply an anecdote, therefore worth nothing. I'm not saying that. Um, but it would be very interesting to know if, if that kind of, if that is replicable and scalable. And, um, and under which conditions it is. So um, I, I think that's the approach that we're taking more and more um, to things like that. That's, again, not a directive, but it's. I think it's my prerogative to, as the moderator to just jump in on that. I, I've studied soft power and how we used it during the Cold War. Um, the irony is, I would argue, the most effective organization in terms of using soft power to make change during the Cold War was the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, they did it covertly by funding uh, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals uh, that were shown all over the, the Soviet Union. Um, did it by funding an, an arts and letters program that, you know, no strings attached. It was just if we fund freedom of expression, that will damage our ideological enemy. 
I don't say that to suggest that's what we do today, but more to say that our bureaucracies and our program lines, and this is Congress's fault as much as it is how we're set up in the executive branch, make it very difficult to have a coordinated and consistent effort in terms of soft power. Um, State Department public diplomacy programs, probably the, the best shot in terms of trying to coordinate in the US government. But I, I actually, for some reason, um, I think this may have to do with some of the counter-ISIL counter work, but I think there's some work being discussed on how we do a little bit better coordination on that fight. Uh, there was just a shift, I think, um, Mike Lumpkin's headed over to State Department, or has headed over to State Department with the ISIL fight, but it's broader than that. And I think it's part of, because a little bit of, of the hearts and minds is DOD, a little bit CIA, a little bit State Department, that's hard to do. We, don't run, we haven't run operations out of the NSC, uh, thanks to the Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel, um, uh, since the mid-80s. So it's really difficult to do it in a coordinated fashion. Uh, we have time for uh, one last question. Yeah, Ma'am? Yes. Uh, so thank you so much for being here. My name is Pam Campos. Um, I am pursuing a Master's of Public Administration at NYU in International Policy and Management. I'm graduating in the spring. Um, I also have a background in um, political organizing. And I've learned that with my experience, kind of what you've all touched on is it's been really informed by my military background. Um, whatever case I'm in, um, just inherently those skills come up. But now that I'm kind of in this upper echelon of a professional development career, um, I'm looking at you know my options in diplomacy. Um, I'm specifically focused on peacekeeping. I recently had a conversation with somebody at the State Department who's pretty high up, and I was very grateful for the opportunity. Um, but she was very firm in an anecdote that I've heard a lot of times, which is, you may have 10 plus years of military experience, but that doesn't really match up. You have to relearn, you have to restart. You're starting at the bottom. Um, and, it's, and it's for sure true. The other anecdote she said is who you know. Um, and, it's something, um, and it's something that we the fellows, we've talked about. We've talked about very candidly with mentors and with, with um, our board members, which is that's sometimes um, contradictory because sometimes there is isolation when you leave the military. You're kind of trying to carve your own path. And you know, I'm very thankful for this fellowship that's created this pipeline of candor and resource and you know, um, find your talent. But, but what's your advice about that kind of contradiction? Um, we're talking here about all the talent that we have, but then there is that validity of, um, for instance, for me, as I'm, as I'm looking at peacekeeping, I'm starting to be with a lot of development counterparts. Where if I was to say, oh, I've been a diplomat as an intelligence analyst for the Air Force, in a combat command, um, that might be testy, right? So, so just what do you, what are your thoughts on that, and what is your advice to student veterans that kind of hit the ceiling um, of being told that advice? Thank you. I think um, I'll take a stab at it. The I, I, this is completely impractical advice, but one of the ways that I've thought about it um, is it's it's like learning a new language, right? You know a language, um, and that means that you also know the parts of grammar and speech, you know the difference between verbs and adverbs, and, and the fact that you already speak a language makes you far better positioned to learn to speak another language, right? You'll pick it up faster, you'll understand the parts of speech better, it will all make more sense to you, um, but you do still need to learn the language. And so um, in in talking with folks who've, who've transitioned and, and frankly in, in the academic community and whatnot, um, the idea is that you can move a little faster perhaps. Um, I wouldn't say that you start at the beginning, but perhaps that's, that's a valid point. Um, you start with a leg up and you start moving, you can move so much faster. Um, you can acquire the skills a little bit um, 
more rapidly than perhaps someone who doesn't have that, that background and that experience and also that confidence too um, that you've built um, through your service. Uh, so you're right, it is a tension and it's a frustrating tension um, to, to hear that kind of feedback that, that what you've done doesn't translate. Um, but you just have to figure out how it does translate and how it does apply and how you can bring that in. So. Okay, well our real last question since I didn't catch him as he was raising his hand. Thanks, Sarah. So one thing uh, to think about um, is, uh, as you've already mentioned, Miriam, is back to school for a bit. Um, and particularly if you're getting out of the military earlier on, I mean, if you're, if, you know, Kim's been, was a long time in. And so I don't recommend that she, I wouldn't re recommend that she go back to school when she was getting out as a, as a general. Um, but uh, those of us who got out um, at, earlier in our careers, going back and get a, a degree, a graduate degree, um, to get you started um, is, is, is worth a thought. Um, so an organization I would look for, um, I would look at, oh, this is going to be terrible that I'm saying this, but think tanks. Um, so I've had an opportunity to, to experience the, uh, sample the wares, if you will, of a variety of think tanks in, in DC, and there's, uh, they're everywhere. Um, each one has a different mandate, a different mission, a different structure, a different means of operating. Um, and they offer all kinds of different opportunities. They offer internships, paid and unpaid. They offer fellowships. Um, organizations like this, where you get together you know, every couple weeks and have drinks and, and listen to a distinguished speaker give you their advice on how to, to run your lives. Um, usually very good advice. Um, uh, and so, and research assistants, um, if you go back to school and you end up getting um, your, your doctorate or your master's degree, there's opportunities to write and to um, be in the administration. And so it's worth um, investigating that, that realm. They're doing a lot of policy work, they're doing a lot of diplomatic work, they're doing a lot of development work, and it's all across the spectrum. Um, and, and that's a good, good place to start looking. I think those are both really, really good pieces of advice. Um, I went back to graduate school after I got out of the military, not straight away, but within a couple of years. It was a really important thing for me to do. Um, I think, you know, in my case, it was law school. I think, you know, people find different ways to do that. I think many of you are doing that. I think it's a good move. Um, I would definitely encourage you to avail yourself of all the different networks and communities that, that are out here, and you'll find a home and just kind of, <coughs> you know, feel what's right. But I think. You know, at the end of the day, life is long and there are many ways to play this game, right? You can go straight into the bureaucracy. You can move around outside in a more entrepreneurial way. Um, 
the best advice I could kind of give you is like to listen to your own preferences. To, to, you're going to be voting with your feet every day in terms of what kind of things you like to do. And I don't mean that in some big, grandiose way. I like Asia more than I like the Middle East, right? I mean, do you like the dynamic entrepreneurial stuff? Do you like to work on a project for a long period of time? Graduate school is a great place to figure that out. What kind of work are you enjoying? Um, because the, the sort of secret I figured out in law school, some, I had a really smart professor tell me this. He's like, look, I was trying to decide, do I join the law review or not? Do I write really long, do I do like due diligence on long research chains, right? And that's a great way to get a, a appellate clerkship and do a lot of things in the law. But the thing is, if you hate that, the problem is, even if you're really good at it, most things you do in life will, if you're successful, create the opportunity to do more of that, that thing at a steadily higher level, right? So figure out early that you totally hate that if you do and do something else. I'm not telling you not to work hard or pay your dues, but like listen to yourself. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of different ways to do it. And again, like you can go down three or four blind alleys. You have time. Most of you are not, you know, so far along in your careers that the, the next move you make, it's sudden death over time and you're done. Like you can go into the State Department for two years and find out you didn't like it and go do something else. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I don't have much more to add really. I, I, I'm it is hard. I mean, get that question a lot, you know, from either graduate students or um, um, even undergrads, right? How do we enter this field? Um, you do need an advanced degree at some point. The competition is fierce. And it's fierce at USAID and every NGO. And, and sometimes being in the military is a strike against you. Um, however, you, rest assured, you want a very solid foundation to do, you know, you, it will not take you 10 years to catch up. I promise you, it, it will not. Um, um, but so you need an advanced degree. And I would, I would say network. And you know, you talked about that, really. Um, but you do have to network. People get jobs because they know people who, even if they're not the hiring person, they point them at an, an opportunity they know about. So don't, you don't have to network in a, in a self-serving, really annoying way, because people can see right through that. Um, but, but you know, to go to things like this. You're here, right? Um, and, and let a thousand flowers bloom. Take the thing that's not optimal. You'll see something else. Get your foot in the door in this field. It is hard. It's, graduate schools are everywhere. It's hard. You could do it, though. Just get your foot in the door, and then you will see. And you will prove yourselves, because you are resting on such a good foundation. You will quickly shine, and other things will be available to you. It's not very specific, but. Go ahead. When you go to these types of events, I think this is a great point, ma'am, that um, ask a question. Um, so obviously not everybody can get a question, and the questions today were fantastic, but truly that's how you get people's attention. I can't count the number of times I've, I've left um, an event where someone has said, that was a great question, I'd like to follow up and discuss. Um, so you know, ask a question. It's, a, it's an easy way to start this networking process in a way that is on a topic that you're interested in. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all right. Sorry. The mayor has lost control. I know. This is over, right? I, um, I lost control 10 minutes ago, but it's OK. You know, when, it talks, when, when we're talking about knowing people is important and networking is important, um, friendship is also really important. And like, the most important people at an event like this are not on the dais, right? They're sitting next to you. So just keep that in mind, right? Just keep those relationships intact and, and help one another and, and try to build community wherever you can find it because that in the long run is what's going to serve you, serve you best. I mean, we'll all be out of our jobs in a heartbeat and we're going to be useless to you, but it's the people that are around you that are like, you know, you're going to be working for each other and knowing each other for the long haul. That's right.
No, thank you, Mike. I think the horizontal network is something that's often understated in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. uh, but with that, um, please join me in, in thanking our panelists and thanking the Atlantic Council for this evening. Outside for reception? Yes. Outside yes. On